This morning, we are returning to Acts chapter 14. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the, uh, one of the Pew Bibles, page 923, for the reading and the hearing of God's Word. We're going to take a closer look at uh, a couple of verses in this passage today, building upon the sermon from two weeks ago. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Holy Word. Our Father, we thank You for loving us, for calling us to be Your people, for giving Your Son to be our shepherd, for binding us together in His body, the church, and for feeding us Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. Help us now to receive what You say and to embrace it with joyful faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 21. Let us hear the holy word of God. When they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then Paul and Barnabas passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, And from there they sailed to Antioch in Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And now unto Him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by His blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Two weeks ago in Acts chapter 14, we came to the completion of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And I summarized the big, big idea of that sermon with Jesus' declaration, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus was stating, declaring His mission strategy for advancing His kingdom throughout the earth. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus' words there in Matthew chapter 16 have a programmatic ring. He was announcing His 
manifesto, that is, his plan, his agenda, his strategy for advancing his kingdom throughout the earth. So, we see from Jesus' own words that the building up of his church is right at the heart of his plan for the salvation of people from every tribe and language and nation, which, of course, still applies to us today. Now, in this sermon, I'm returning to Acts 14 to focus on two verses in particular, verse 23 and verse 27. And I want you to see in these two verses two very basic, fundamental, foundational points. And they are so obvious that they are very easy to miss. So I'm going to be belaboring the obvious this morning so we don't miss it, okay? Number one, the importance, indeed the centrality of the church in Paul's missionary endeavors. And therefore, the importance, the centrality of the church of Jesus Christ in earliest Christianity. And number two, the necessity and the importance of, verse uh, 23 again, elders in every church, elders in every church, the importance of that, the significance of that in earliest Christianity as a part of the work of the Apostle Paul. And and then thirdly, if I said two points, here's the third one. What I want us to see in terms of the centrality of the church and the importance of elders in every church, what I want you to see is the love of Jesus Christ for you, His care for you. His shepherding of you, His preservation of you as members of His church. It's because He loves you. He is a good shepherd, okay? All right. Beginning at verse 21, we read that as Paul and Barnabas were on their way home, so to speak, On their way home, they returned to those cities in which they had previously preached the gospel. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. On their way home, retracing their steps, the scripture says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But, now please note this. In your open Bible, note, Paul and Barnabas, this is important. I want you to get this. As 21st century American Christians, I really want you to get this. Paul and Barnabas did not regard these new converts, these new Christians, as though they were isolated, disconnected individuals. Repeat. 
Paul and Barnabas did not treat these new believers as though they were isolated, disconnected, random individuals who just happened to believe the gospel. No. Look, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. Think about that phrase. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. What does that tell you? It tells us the obvious that these new believers were gathered together in local churches and identified with local churches. It tells us that these brand new local churches comprised of brand new believers in Christ were organized in such a way that they had church leadership, church government, church oversight by elders. I'm belaboring the obvious, but it's right there in first century, brand new (laughs) Christianity in the first Missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Now, what does it tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us this. Get this. Get this. It tells us that the Apostle Paul was not merely a traveling evangelist. Repeat. The Apostle Paul was not merely a traveling, itinerant evangelist who went, preached the gospel, and hoped that some random individuals would believe. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul in his missionary endeavors was not merely a traveling evangelist. He was a church planter and a church organizer. Now why is that important? It's important because he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church. What Paul and Barnabas were doing on that first missionary journey and what Paul and others accompanying him on his later missionary journeys was doing was what Jesus told them to do. They were implementing Jesus' strategy, Jesus' plan for the advance of His kingdom throughout the world, namely His church. You see, I'm belaboring the point because it's so easy to miss the centrality, the absolute necessity of the church in first century Christianity, the necessity and the importance of elders in every church in earliest Christianity, And these are expressions of Christ's love for His church. Gathering the church together for nurture, for protection, for good teaching, for the advance of His kingdom throughout the earth. All right, now let's ask an even more basic question. What is the church? (laughs) 
church. What does that word, church, what does it mean? We use it all the time. What does it mean, the word church? What did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church? Well, Jesus obviously was not referring to a physical building, though yes, yes, the word church sometimes refers to a physical building, and that's okay, but that's totally beside the point. Our English word church, church, is actually related to a Greek word, kurios, kurios. You can kind of hear it, C-H-K, it's got a U, it's got an R, church, kurios. Our, Greek, our word church is in that same Greek word family as kurios, and here you go. The Greek word kurios means Lord, Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios. And the church, therefore, is the Lord's. That's what it means. The church is the Lord's people, bought with his own blood. The church is the Lord's flock for whom he, the good shepherd, laid down his life. The church is the Lord's bride whom he loved and for whom he died. The church is the Lord's house in whom he dwells by his spirit. The church is the Lord's kingdom on earth in which he rules his people by his word and spirit and protects them and preserves them and leads them in his mission to fill the earth with the glory of God. So you see, every time we say the word church, we ought to think about what it really means, what it means about who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and who we are in relation to him, his people, his flock, his beloved bride, his house, his kingdom, because of his grace, his mercy, and his power. Whenever we say the word church, we ought to remember that it is right at the heart of Christ's mission in the world to the world. We, if we belong to Christ by faith, are members of His beloved church, and we ought to rejoice in that, find great comfort in that. We belong to Him. He's not left us to ourselves. He loves us and gathers us in. It is a glorious reality. Now here's another word study. In the New Testament, when we read the word church, the Greek word directly underneath it, it's not that word kurios. It's a different word. It's translated into English. It's translated into English as church, but in the New Testament, in the Greek, this passage, it's a compound word. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Ek. Ek. Well, that sounds like exit, doesn't it? Extricate. It means out. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Kaleo. Comes from a 
a Greek verb, kaleo, call, call, call. Now you get it, don't you? You get it. You know a lot of Greek. You didn't know. The ekklesia is the people who have been called out. Good, I saw that. You got it. Called out. Not in a bad way, but in a wonderful way. Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Called out of the slavery of sin to be the saints of God. Called out of death into everlasting life. Over and over and over again, the New Testament tells believers that we have been called by God into a relationship with Him. My sheep know my voice and they follow me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the church is the Lord's people, the people He has called out from every nation by His Word and Spirit to be His kingdom on the earth. And let me let me italicize, underline, and highlight in yellow that you see He, he, he calls us as individuals and our faith is individual, but it is not individualistic. He calls us as his corporate people, his flock. That, that's a bunch of sheep. His house, that's a bunch of bricks. You get the idea. Individual faith, but corporate identity in Christ. Right? It's no little thing. I mean, you know, we, today we might take church membership for granted. You know, like, well, okay, well, I joined Covenant, you know, sort of like, you know, I joined, you know, this fitness center or something. No, come on, you don't believe that. But let's don't think like that. This is not a venue for consumerism. Right? This is not a venue for consumerism. It is no little thing to be a member of Christ's church. It is a miracle of His supernatural grace, mercy, and power. It's not simply a matter of our voluntary association with a human organization that we just happen to prefer. Oh, no. Not if we truly belong to Jesus Christ and truly belong to His true church by faith in Him. That is a miracle of His redeeming love, and we ought to thank Him for it and rejoice in it. All right, one more clarification. There is one true church of Jesus Christ. That is the worldwide, universal, or Catholic, lowercase c, Catholic. I believe in the holy Catholic church. The word Catholic literally means literally means according to the whole, embracing the whole, having to do with the whole, W-H-O-L-E. The idea is that the church is one body throughout the world and throughout history, including the true believers of the Old Testament time. One body, one church, worldwide, throughout history, The Holy Catholic Church. But then, of course, there are lots of 
local churches, the church in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, the church in what would we would later, you know, come to be the church in Ephesus and Philippi and the churches of Galatia and Crete and Covenant EPC and St. Paul's United Methodist and Parkview Baptist, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But these local churches are particular expressions of the one church of Jesus Christ. So, according to the New Testament, membership in the one worldwide universal Catholic Church of Jesus Christ necessarily involves membership in a local particular church of Jesus Christ. Now, now this fundamental, foundational, scripturally revealed truth, of course, is just sort of being cast to the wind these days in American Protestantism and American evangelicalism. You know, oh, well, I don't have to belong to any church. You know, I'm a member of Jesus' worldwide church, but I'm not a member of any local church. Find that in the New Testament. Show me. And you won't. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find this novel idea of individual Christians who are not members of, and that means identified with, vitally connected to a local church and under the leadership of authorized church government. It won't happen. It doesn't happen in the New Testament. And by the way, I want you to see this. This gets us to verse 27. When Paul and Barnabas arrived back home, so to speak, in Antioch of Syria, when they got back from where they had started out, what did they do? Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together. Oh, don't fly over that verse too fast. When they arrived and what did they do? And they gathered the church Together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What did they do? They reported back to the church in Antioch, the church that had commissioned them for their missionary journey. Now, Acts chapter 13 tells us that, you see, Paul and Barnabas were set apart. They were commissioned by prayer and fasting by the church leaders in Antioch of Syria. Acts 13.4 says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Note that. Well, they, they were set apart by the church leaders. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit spoke and worked through the leadership of that church, sending Paul and Barnabas. And so they returned to the church in Antioch to give their report, their account to the church, which had sent them. There was accountability within the church regarding this missionary endeavor. Get this, the apostle Paul himself was not acting as an independent, individualistic operator. The apostle Paul was carrying out his calling as an apostle within and through his personal connection 
with the church of Jesus Christ in Antioch. Do you see that? Now, what does this tell us? <laughs> it tells us that from the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ was a corporate body of believers which had organization, structure, recognized leadership, and accountability. And a lot of the times these days, I'm afraid you don't really see that in American Protestant churches. But once you take the words of Jesus seriously and then read the book of Acts carefully and then consider the letters of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and other New Testament epistles, then you will more clearly see the obvious. Oh, the church is indeed central and necessary and of incalculable significance in the New Testament. Oh, the Christian faith according to the New Testament. It's not a matter of isolated, individual, disconnected people who just happen to believe certain things or who just individually follow a moral and ethical code. No. Oh, you mean to be a Christian is to be, by definition, necessarily a member of the body of Christ, the church, in a local congregation. Read the New Testament carefully and thoroughly, and you will see, oh, there's no such thing as Christianity without the church. There's no such thing as living the Christian life apart from the church. The idea of a Christian who is not a member of a local congregation is completely foreign, alien to the New Testament. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I... But I, I, I want you to get it because this is the kind of church we want to be, a biblical church, and we want to be on the same page, and we want to understand this about ourselves, right? Because many professing Christians in America today evidently have the misconception that living the Christian life is a private do-it-yourself project. I, I've even heard of churches in which there is no membership, but how can that be? When we read the New Testament, how, how can that possibly be? When the Apostle Paul called the elders in Ephesus later, this is Acts 20, but I want to show you this. When he called the elders in Ephesus together to say farewell to them, the Apostle Paul said this to the elders, elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Take care of yourselves, over yourselves. Take care of the flock in which you are an overseer, of the flock which... God obtained by his own blood. What a charge. It's a monumental admonition. It means that the Holy Spirit raises up elders to oversee, lead, nurture, protect local congregations, the flock of God which he obtained with his own blood. And that exhortation clearly shows that Christians are to be bonded together in congregations under recognized leadership and oversight. The New Testament clearly teaches us that the Christian faith is not a privatistic, 
individualistic, do-it-yourself spiritual project. And there are a multitude of verses which I could quote, but uh, for which I don't have enough time. But here's one. In his first letter, the apostle Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Well, again, that implies a gathered congregation, a flock, under the care of elders, under the oversight of leaders who are governing and protecting the the church, shepherds who are to, to shepherd, to, to feed, to guide, to guard, following the example of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So the concern of having churches well-ordered well and well-governed by elders is a primary concern in Paul's first letter to Timothy and to Titus. Now, here's another Greek lesson for you. Many of you will know that the word elder in English it comes is the direct translation of the Greek word presbyter. Presbyter, that's the Greek word. And we are covenant Presbyterian church in the evangelical Presbyterian denomination because we are a denomination and a local congregation which is governed or ruled by elders. That's how we get our name. But you, you see, the New Testament shows us that from the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ was a corporate body of believers in various congregations, again, which had organization, structure, recognized leadership, and accountability. And these, these New Testament churches of the first century, you see, were, were simply um, uh, modeled on, based on the, the Old Covenant synagogue. That's the idea. You know, you read about elders in the Old Testament. You read about elders in the Gospels in the first century uh, time. Uh, the elders of Israel, the elders of the Jews. Well, you see, in the New Covenant, we're we, we, we the New Covenant Israel. Our congregation is a New Covenant synagogue. That's the point. And um, so likewise, we have the leadership of elders. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, I know. I know that I am, but I'm preaching to the choir in order to encourage you to think about these things and to take them seriously and deeply as you consider your membership in our local congregation as, as the, the, the vehicle by which you are a member of Christ's one worldwide Holy Catholic Church. So I'm preaching to the choir and I want to commend you, as I thought through and worked through this service, uh, sermon, I, I want to commend you because I think that for the, a most, for the most part, to a very high degree, you do have a wonderful sense of belonging to Jesus and therefore of belonging to one another. I, I, I think that's true of you, and I thank God for that. I commend you, and, and you do, for the most part, to a high degree, I think, have a commitment to the body. That is to be greatly rejoiced in. I think that you do, for the most part, to a high degree, understand Covenant EPC to be a church family, the Lord's family, 
the Lord's people bought with his blood, the Lord's flock for whom he laid down his life, the Lord's bride for whom he died. And when we regard one another as, as members of that glorious redeemed people, then we can, we can regard one another in the joy and love of the Lord and love one another even more fervently. You see, this is who we are. How wonderful is this? I do think that for the most part, to a high degree, you understand and are understanding to a greater and greater degree that this isn't a do-it-yourself project. We're not flying by the seat of our pants, that we do have church government, that we do have elder oversight, that we do have discipline and accountability as well as nurture and care, and that you take seriously your vow your sacred, holy vow to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the EPC and to the spiritual oversight of this church session. I think that to a large degree, for the most part, you get that and are getting that and are growing in that, as are our elders. But you just think about that notion in 21st century America. Do you submit yourself? to the government and discipline of the EPC and the spiritual oversight of the church session. That's a mark of the true church, the biblical church. I commend you for that. I encourage you to continue to build up and support and promote that kind of vision, identity, sense of belonging, commitment, Fellowship in the life of covenant. We want to be a biblical church. That's why I'm drilling down on the obvious this morning. And your elders are committed to that, and they're growing spiritually in their role as leaders, overseers, governors, and shepherds of the flock. And I think that's evident in, in the way our church life is being governed and ruled. Thankful for that. The church, this congregation, like all Christian congregations, is not merely a human organization. It's not a human organization. It involves humans, but it isn't a human organization. It is the creation of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Word and Spirit. It is not something that belongs to any one of us. We are His flock obtained by His own blood. We belong to Him because He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. In His love, in His love, in His love, in His everlasting love, He has gathered us together into His keeping, brought us into His care. He feeds us with His Word. He empowers us with His Spirit. He disciplines us and nurtures us. And He calls us to be a part of His great missionary work throughout the world. And we are citizens of His kingdom on earth to serve Him all our days until He receives us into His kingdom in heaven. He's called us that we may declare His excellencies. He loved us and gave Himself for us so that we might live in a union of love with Him and love for one another. He has knit us together as His body. He has filled us with His Spirit so that we might serve Him to the glory of His name. Here's the thing. Jesus Christ is building His church, and the gates of hell shall not 
prevail against it. And you're a part of that. If you are in union with Jesus Christ through faith. It's a greatest identity that any one of us could ever have. Treasure it. Give thanks for it. And live it out. In Jesus' name, let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice in your great work of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in our identity as your redeemed people. And we do ask, O Lord, um, that we would walk, live, day by day, step by step, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker.